what about this problem that you're working on? What about this invention that your company has created? Why do you think it's, it's captured the attention of so many people? What, what, do you, what is it about it, do you think? Yeah, I think there's, there's something about sight that we can all relate to. And I think blindness in particular is one of the things that many of us fear as a deficit. And so it's something that if, if we just close our eyes, we can, we can get a sense of what it would like, be like to be blind. And I think that's something that's a little bit different than a lot of other diseases because, uh, you know, it's hard to... Uh, hard if you don't have heart disease. It's hard to relate to heart disease, and um, even even hearing, which is another really important sense, it's hard to relate to what it's like to be deaf because uh, you can't shut off your ears. But I think because we can close our eyes and 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 imagine what it's like to be blind, I think that that gives it a certain emotional impact that's different than other other problems. What what have uh, blind people that, that you've interacted with have, they, have you ever had them try to sort of explain to you what it's like? I mean, is it I mean, it's got to be something more than just closing your eyes, right? Yeah, I, th I think it's, you know, I think one of the things for blind people is that it's very isolating. It's something that um, it's very difficult for them to get out in the world and, and, and be a part of, of society. They can, they can converse, uh, they can have a conversation so they're connected to other people, but it's very tough for them to feel secure in, um, in uh, particularly unfamiliar environments. And so we hear a lot of... Uh, that's probably the most common thing that we hear is that uh, it, it's kind of a lack of uh, comfort in being out and about in the world and kind of feeling vulnerable uh, and uh, when they're out and about. So in, in sort of as simple a way as you can, maybe take us through the technology a little bit and then how, now this is a 22-year project that you've been a part of. Take us through, first of all, how you explain the the device to people uh, who, who may or may not have a lot of medical knowledge? And, and what's the difference between you know, restoring sight to the blind and, and, and a cure for blindness? Yeah, so I, I guess starting backwards, uh, so this is not, it's not a cure for blindness as, as you're kind of alluding to, um, but what, what this is is it's, we're restoring vision uh, to these patients. And so we're not actually curing the underlying disease. But what we're doing is similar to a cochlear implant for the ear. So if uh, some of you may be familiar with Advanced Bionics, another company that was founded by our, our founder, founder, Al Mann, is, is a device that actually has a microphone and sends the, the signal wirelessly to an implant in the ear that electrically stimulates the ear and bypasses the dead cells and allows people to hear again. And, and those devices have been uh, incredibly successful uh, in the marketplace. We're doing the same thing for vision. So we have a, a, a pair of glasses that has a video camera that picks up the signal in front of the patient, picks up the image of uh, what the patient could be seeing, and then we wirelessly transmit that image to an implant that's in the eye, and we electrically stimulate the back of the eye, the retina, uh, with that corresponding image. So basically, you've, uh, you're essentially replicating what the normal eye is doing using, a video using electronics, using a video camera, and using this electronic implant that goes inside the eye. And so this is the result, though, of, a, of an experiment 22 years ago, correct? Yeah, so it started, I mean, it started back at Johns Hopkins uh, with, uh, when I was in graduate school there, and it was some simple experiments that we were doing with blind patients where we took completely blind patients, and under local anesthesia, these were her kind of heroic experiments. Under local anesthesia, we put a wire in these totally blind patients' eyes and, uh, and asked them what they, what they would see. And the, 
I, when I got involved, the very first experiment um, that we did uh, in a patient, the, uh, we, put a, we put a wire and the surgeon would hold this. The, the, pa the patient was awake, we're in the operating room, and so things are beeping, they're under local anesthesia, and the surgeon would literally um, hold this wire, trying to hold it in the eye, as close to the back of the retina, the back of the eye as he could, and this, this eye is moving, so the surgeon needs to hold it within half a millimeter of this moving eye without touching the retina. If he, if he touched the retina, the retina is like one ply wet tissue paper, and if he touched the retina, he would damage the retina, which in this case wasn't, wouldn't be a terrible tragedy because the patient was completely blind, uh, but what we did is we ran a little bit of electrical current through that one, one wire, and the patient said, I see a spot of light, and then we, then the, uh, the surgeon took a second wire, and so with two hands held two wires really close to the back of this patient's retina, and we ran current through the second wire, and the patient said, I see two spots now. And for me, that was kind of the defining moment of, uh, of the rest of my career, was, was it was very clear that if the patient could see two spots, all we needed, it was a simple engineering project, I thought, as an electrical engineer at the time. <laughs> yeah. We just needed to make more spots, and, yeah. and, and then the guy would see like a scoreboard, he would see, he would see images, but, but here we are 25 years later, so. Uh. I'm wondering in that moment, so I mean obviously, this is you know, your prototypical aha moment, but in, in that moment are you saying, my God, we have the treatment to help restore sight to the blind? I mean, are you thinking that big? Or you know, is there an evolution to that thought? I guess I'm trying to drill down into how you, how you solve these big problems. You have this massive mountain. So as, as an engineer, as a scientist, a doctor, where did you, how did you start? I think even before we did that experiment, we thought, you know, with the, we did the experiment with the idea in mind that, that this could uh, solve the problem of blindness. So I think this was, this was kind of the experiment to, to prove that it was possible. And then I think for, for that, mo that moment being the aha moment was the moment that, that we realized it was possible and that, that the idea would, would work um, if, we, uh, if we could get the engineering down. So I, I think, so we kind of did the experiment with the intent of proving that it was possible. So then you think, okay, this is just a matter of uh, getting more wires into the eye, or I mean, what, were you intimidated by this, or was it just sort of, I'm young and, you know, I'm, I can do this? And yeah, I think it was, um, it was, it was definitely, it was, it was definitely, I, I think for me that moment was, yes, I, I can do this. I know, I, I was an electrical engineer by background, and so I, I, th I thought, this is an electrical engineering project. We just need to make more more wires, and mm -hmm. uh, and it should be straightforward. In fact, my, my thesis advisor at Johns Hopkins at the time so asked me, you know, what do you think it would take to, to actually build one of these and put it in the eye? And I said, I don't know. I think you know. And how long would it take? And uh, and I was a graduate student at the time, eating ramen noodles, and and I thought I said, you know, I picked the biggest number I could think of at the time. I, th I said, I think it'll take a million dollars, and I think we could do it in a year if we really <laughs> if we really focused our attention on it, but uh, I, I underestimated by a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> and how long and how much did it take now? And so it took us 22 years yeah. and about $200 million. Okay. <laughs> so does that mean when you're doing your pitch deck, you should kind of uh, up your expectations 22 times? Or? Yeah, I think, I think the reality is things take much longer than you originally anticipate. Just on that, on that I mean, did you encounter setbacks? I mean, what were some of the setbacks? and, and, and uh, you know, how did your team kind of overcome some of those? 
I think there were a lot of things that, we, that were much harder than we appreciated in the beginning. So one of the things that, was, that turned out to be incredibly difficult was we were trying to take electronics and put it into the body. And the body is like the ocean. So you have this saltwater environment. So it's like taking your television, throwing it in the ocean, and having it still work. And, but it, it got even harder than that, because now we're also shrinking your television to the size of an aspirin and putting all that electronics into, into a, a package the size of an aspirin. So I think that challenge turned out to be much tougher th than we thought. Mm -hmm. um, and there were other ones like that. Like the retina itself is like one ply wet tissue paper. It's incredibly delicate. So trying to attach something to this, this very delicate tissue without damaging it was also very challenging. So we, we went through literally hundreds of designs. It's kind of the, almost the Edison story where he tried lots of different um, filaments before you found one that would actually work in a light bulb. And it was just, it was sheer trial and error where we really just kept, uh, and there were moments where, where it looked like it was too hard. Like uh, after about two years of trying different, different electrode shapes and different electrode materials uh, and still seeing the retinas of these animals detach, uh, two years into that, I remember sitting at a board meeting, you know, and we were having a, a frank discussion about maybe this is really too hard. Maybe, maybe we can't do this. Uh, and it was, you know, literally maybe a month after that that we, that we found a design that did uh, that held up and didn't damage the retina. So would you say? I mean, and so that was two years into the project, or was well, no, two. So there was about two years working on a particular okay. on that particular problem. So there were there were a lot of different technology pieces that we had to put together to make this work. But the the one of the harder ones was the interface between the the electronics and the body and this 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 one ply wet tissue paper retina. Yeah. And, and so trying to get, um, you know, there was, a, there was a moment where we thought we couldn't, it was an unsolvable problem that we couldn't actually do it. How'd you break that log jam? Do you remember? Well, having, having, a, having a board that was patient and believed that it was possible, uh, you know, in that conversation, uh, it was actually, I think it was Al Mann who, who said, you know what, this is an engineering problem. This is, this is solvable. And you guys just need to get back to the lab and, and, uh, and solve it. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> And, uh, and you know, and, and, and providing the funding uh, during that during that time during that time of high uncertainty, not yeah. knowing whether it really was solvable or not, and um, and so uh, yeah, and it was uh, and it was it was you know we weren't far away at that point. I mean, we were we were closer than we realized. Right. And so that was about how long ago now? And so that that meeting was probably uh, maybe five years into, so maybe ten years ago. Okay. I'm, I'm wondering, so you've mentioned Thomas Edison, you know, was there any other kind of an Al man? Uh, I mean, were there any sort of philosophies or, or people who, um, whose philosophies you kind of leaned on in terms of innovating or, or any things that any lead that you followed there? Well, cer I mean, certainly, I mean, Al's history uh, of sticking with projects that I think one of the one of the hallmarks of Al's success uh, has been exact, kind of exemplified in that moment where uh, he's stuck with projects that other people um, have given up more easily. And I think Al's philosophy of, of realizing that the only, way, the only way really to fail in a project is to give up. And as long as you don't give up, uh, then you can't fail. And so, um, and that philosophy has been really instrumental throughout the company. Uh, I think we, even when we started, when we started uh, hiring for the company, one of the things we did early on is we hired um, a lot of folks that were straight out of school that, that actually didn't know 
that the kinds of things we were trying to do were impossible. Mm -hmm. So, the because uh, we we interviewed we interviewed some senior engineers that that felt you know they would they would say you know that that's not possible and we say okay thank you very much <laughs> and uh, but but there were a lot there were some of the some of the younger engineers that um, that didn't yet know <laughs> it was impossible that uh, that turned out to be really really crucial for some of the success. Yeah, how did you meet L Man? How did you end up uh, being with him. So I, um, I was actually giving a, I was giving a talk at the NIH uh, when I was a graduate student and, and met a fellow Joe Shulman who was Al's very first employee at Pacesetter. Uh, Pacesetter was the uh, Al's pacemaker company that became the number two pacemaker company is now um, St. Jude, um, St. Jude's Cardiac Rhythm Management Division. But uh, I met him uh, when I was in graduate school, this fellow Joe Shulman and Joe gave me his card and said, you know, when you graduate, uh, I'll give you a job. And uh, I thought it was a little bit strange, but, uh, but uh, and, I, and I stayed in touch with, with Joe, but I actually went to work at the FDA after graduate school and as a medical officer reviewing uh, medical devices. And while I was at the FDA, Joe called me and said, my boss, Al Mann, is, is going to be in DC giving a talk, and it was actually a talk on entrepreneurship. And, uh, He'd like to. He'd like to meet you, and uh, so I, uh, I, I, went down to where he was giving a talk, and that was the first time I met Al. And Al said, "You've got to come out to California, and see what we're doing," and, uh, and so I did. And so, where, did he take you to Advanced Bionics, or, or where did he take you? So actually, the so he actually brought me into. So Joe was at the time. This fellow Joe Shulman was running Al's nonprofit research foundation, uh, so the Alman Foundation, mm -hmm. and and the Alman Foundation is an interesting organization that is uh, actually more. Uh, it's not a typical granting foundation. It's a uh, it's a research and development foundation. So, it has a, it's a group of about 125 people who who do advanced R and D that's not quite ready for commercialization, but is uh, is is uh, important kind of important five to ten year projects typically, and uh, and that's actually where I began working with Al was in this foundation and actually helped helped organize and, and co lead that organization with Joe Shulman at the time. And, and so, when did he, to take me through the funding just really quickly, because I think one of the interesting parts about Second Sight is that you had investors who were patient enough to see through a, a process that was more than two decades long. I mean, that's, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's actually really remarkable that, that you know, our, our time to first revenue uh, was, was probably, uh, 13, about 13 years from the time the company was founded to the to the first first revenue, um, other than grant revenue, we were also really fortunate to get grants along the way. So we've uh, we've gotten about 100 million dollars in grants and federal grants over the years. But the uh, the funders, it was interesting, kind of how Second Sight got started because I was working at Alman's Foundation at the time, and there was an investor, Sam Williams, who who himself was an incredible entrepreneur. He uh, created these jet engines. These uh, very tiny jet engines that uh, today power the U.S. cruise missiles, and uh, also the um, um, Richard Branson's Virgin Galactica. Uh, his engine, the engines for this Virgin Galactica, were made by, by by Sam Williams, and Sam happened to be an investor in Advanced Bionics, Al's company that made cochlear implants, and Sam was blind with retinitis pigmentosa, the disease that that we were interested in. And Sam asked, the way it, this, this happened was Sam actually asked Al, 
you know, this cochlear implant does wonderful things for uh, the hearing impaired. Could something like this work in vision? And Al knew uh, of the experiments that we had done at Johns Hopkins, and he said to Sam, well, I, I'm not sure, but this fellow who works in my foundation, Bob Greenberg, had done some work at Johns Hopkins. Why don't you talk to him? And, uh, and I, met, I met, went out and talked with Sam, this fellow, Sam Williams. And uh, Sam, the next day, called Al and said, I think we should do this. I think this is possible. And uh, Al said, okay, uh, you know, Bob's working in my foundation. Why don't you fund the foundation? And Sam was the one who initially said, you know, Al, you and I are both entrepreneurs, and I think I've given tons of money to universities, and uh, I haven't seen any the kind of uh, output that we get out of a focused company effort. And so I would prefer to start a, start a company and give the employees stock options, and let's have a very focused effort. I want this to happen in my lifetime. And, uh, and that's how Second Sight got started. Is he, uh, is he now somebody who has the Argus too, or? No, so, this, the, so Sam, uh, Sam uh, the unfortunate thing is he uh, fell ill a couple of years ago with a different, uh, a different illness and actually passed away a couple of years ago. But his son is still very much involved and on our board and, uh, and, and committed to the company. So one of the, you know, one of the sadder things about the company is that Sam himself uh, didn't get a chance to actually get the implant. But he did get to see, he did get to see the Argus too. Uh, the success in the clinical trials. And I mean, that takes me to a question about how you how did you recruit your patients in the trials, and uh, were you ever concerned about overpromising? Yeah, I think one of the things that we were very careful about during the clinical trial was basically telling the patients that they were going to get no benefit at all, um, and that was um, that was kind of critical. And, and even, even having said that during the clinical trials, when we, when we had no idea what the benefit was going to be, and we were really, they were really truly experimental in the early, early days, um, there, was, there were still patients that, of course, were hoping that there would be, uh, that they would get some personal benefit from it. And, and thankfully, the majority of them did get, uh, did get personal benefit from it. Right. And there's, There's a particular one, right? I mean, like the was it one of your first implement implantation implantations? Uh, was actually the the first person you did the experiments with, correct? Yeah. So that 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 experiment I described earlier with the one wire and then two wire uh, was with a fellow, and I can I can say his name now because it's been publicized quite a bit. But this fellow Harold Churchy, he was the very first uh, person to get this uh, initial uh, uh, initial wire experiment, and he was one of the most generous people you could ever imagine, and he, uh, uh, a very religious person as well. And, and we had promised him that if we ever built a device, he would be the first one to get it. And in fact, uh, he was the first, uh, the first one who was implanted with an what we called our Argus One, which was a, um, a modified cochlear implant. We actually took advanced bionics cochlear implant and modified it with a different, a different cable that we implanted in this patient. It was a heroic surgery, took eight hours, uh, four surgeons to, to put this device in, and following that surgery, we uh, we we hadn't even yet integrated the the camera on the glasses. So this was just a we we handed handed Harold the uh, this is about two weeks after the surgery everything had healed, and we handed him this camera and there's a room full of people and um, this was uh, done at USC and the USC. Um, uh, media department was uh, was was videoing this and uh, standing room only, and he's holding this camera. We had uh, using a uh, 
using a projector, much like the projector on the wall there, we, had, we were projecting a letter L. And Harold was holding this video camera uh, against the wall. And everybody's kind of waiting with bated breath. What, so, you know, does he see something? And he starts shaking his head. Um, and we're like, oh my god, this was you know, after, at this point we had put five or six years into developing this, even this initial prototype, and we thought it, it didn't work, uh, there's something wrong. And, and then he starts saying, well, all I see is a line like this and a line like that. And we said, Harold, what is it? He goes, I don't know, it just looks like an L. <laughs> and we said, yeah, yeah, that's right, it's an L. And uh, so it was one of those moments where we went from kind of the bottom right. pit to, uh, to elation. And, uh, what, what, did he, what did these people tell you when they, because I mean, they've lost their vision, right? So they had vision, they lost it, and then they're regaining some of it. What, what, what are some of them saying to you? I mean, I, I saw some of the FDA uh, testimonies and they're very emotional, but what do they, I mean, what do they say to you? Yeah, I think you know a lot of them tell us that it's very hard for a sighted person to appreciate what it's like to go completely blind and to kind of lose that last bit of hope, that last bit of light, and to and, and kind of the emotional impact to restoring that and kind of opening up that visual field again um, for these patients. Um, it's a very emotional experience for a lot of them. Um, we've done some experiments recently with color vision where we're uh, where we're, the, the commercial version of the Argus II that got FDA approval this year is, is a black and white version similar to black and white television. But we've been doing some color experiments and so the color, um, seeing color again for the first time is something that um, is, uh, is very impactful. The uh, seeing people, you know, one of the things that we hear very commonly from patients is just being able to have a conversation with someone and knowing, seeing where they are and seeing whether they're facing you or whether they've turned away, those, those small social cues that we all take for granted are incredibly impactful for these people and feeling connected to, uh, to the world. And, mm -hmm. and being able to get around is something that we hear a lot from these patients as well. Um, there was one patient who, is, uh, during the clinical trial, uh, his wife realized that he could um, sort laundry now because he, uh, he could tell uh, <laughs> lights from darks from grays. And, and he came into the clinic upset with us. Yeah. <laughs> he said, you've ruined my life. <laughs> my wife wants me to sort the laundry. Uh, now, the condition retinosis, retinosis pigmentosa, that's, a, that's still a relatively small disease state, though, correct? What is it, uh, one out of every? Yeah, so there are about, about 100,000 patients in the U.S. with uh, retinitis pigmentosa and about 163,000 patients with RP in mm -hmm. Europe. And so it's a, it's a relatively rare disease, but it still impacts quite a few people. Uh, in the U.S., uh, we estimate there are about 10,000 of those patients who have gone completely blind, which are the ones that we're, we're currently treating. Mm -hmm. uh, when we got the FDA approval, we had several thousand of them call us um, that, that we believe uh, are qualified to meet the uh, label, um, asking us uh, where they can get the device. And, so our, our biggest challenge right now actually is building enough, building enough right. of these uh, to try to, to meet that, that need. But, but, but there's still, I mean, I mean, I don't know, I've read published reports that says they're $100,000, they cost $100,000 each. Uh, but you have, I mean, you have reimbursement, you won reimbursement for it, but I, I just wonder, you know, it's such an incredible product, you know, how do you avoid sort of, when Dean came in, it, 
introduced the, the wheelchair that could walk down the stairs. And, and obviously, you didn't get hung up in the same way he did on reimbursement. But you know, these amazing technological leaps, and there's so there's such a high cost barrier. Uh, I mean, do you ever do you ever encounter the that's it's amazing, but so what kind of thing? Yeah, we've never met a patient that said so what. Um, the, uh, I don't know. I'd rather, <laughs> rather be blind. Uh, and, and I think the, fun, the funders, we've been really fortunate with the funders uh, for similar reasons. The, um, there was some research done by one of, our, um, one of our investigators during the clinical trial, a fellow Gary Brown out of the University of Pennsylvania, where he actually looked at vision, levels of vision, and what they call qualities, or quality of life adjusted years. So you can actually put a dollar amount on, it's kind of a strange concept, but you can put a dollar amount on losing various levels of vision. And, and what we found in looking at, at his research was that the levels of vision that we're restoring is actually valued uh, much higher than, than the actual dollar amount of these implants. And so, um, and, it, and it's, it sort of makes some intuitive sense, too, that we, we all value our vision quite a bit. And if we, if we, were, to if we were to lose it, it's something that, um, uh, that we would want, want restored. I think another thing to think about, um, the US price for the device is actually $144,000. But it's a one-time uh, one uh, cost, as opposed to Lucentis, as an example. There's a, a drug. Um, uh, multi-billion dollar blockbuster drug for macular degeneration that um, runs around $20,000 a year and patients are on that for the rest of their life uh, with this uh, drug. So um, this is actually more cost effective right. uh, than that therapy and, and actually produces a bigger, a bigger relative impact in the patients uh, than that therapy. A couple things that I found a little bit Interesting about first about the product. It does look a little like it came out of a science fiction movie. Uh, the guys who the men and women who designed it were they science fiction fans or? or I mean, where, where, yeah. So a lot, was a lot of us. In there? So so a lot of the folks of the company grew up in the '70s watching the Six Million Dollar Man, and I think you know there was certainly an influence uh, by a lot of the, the science fiction. Uh, the particular glasses that we chose were, were Oakley's, uh, and that was in part because uh, Oakley was a local company uh, here in Orange County, um, and then also in part because uh, uh, it, was, it was a young engineer who... Um, the Terminator, uh, like who, and who These were a pair of sunglasses that he, uh, he had laying around uh, and, uh, and liked them. So that's actually one of the things that we're looking at, looking at improving uh, going forward yeah. is the... Uh, is the the aesthetics uh, of the design, because it's a very particular yeah. look. Could you get yeah. different shape, different styles in there? Or Today, you see that? Not yet, the but John but, Lennon's or but, something. But you will be able to get you will be able to get different style oh, glasses. That's very yeah, cool. Absolutely. Today you can get a clear you can get clear lenses or dark. Oh wow! For the choice you can get, it's like the old Model T Ford. You can get any color you want as long as it's black. Yeah. So. <laughs> so I mean, I, an interesting thing I discovered in, in researching cochlear implants was actually that. The, there's, they're almost a little bit, they're not controversial, but there's a, a section of the deaf community that, that rejects the idea of cochlear implants. Um, and I'm wondering if any of that exists in the blind community, what the blind community's reaction has been to, to, to what you're doing here? Yeah, so um, I've never, the only time I've ever actually seen Al Man get mad is when He's been talking about the the deaf community wanting uh, uh, wanting 
deaf children to remain deaf. And it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting phenomenon where there are parents of deaf children who um, there's what they call a deaf culture. And so there's a belief that, uh, that it's by some, by some deaf people that it's not, it's not a deficit to be deaf and it's actually part of their, part of their quote, culture. Uh, despite all the evidence that if you give a child a cochlear implant, they are able to be mainstreamed and they're able to actually, uh, their, their employment is better, their, uh, their kind of every, every measurable aspect of, uh, of their life is improved by getting this cochlear implant. Um, that doesn't, so that, that culture, I think, is because we, hearing is such an important part of, of communication and, and, um, and, uh, and our kind of cultural experience. That same phenomenon doesn't exist in vision, fortunately. So there's no one who's blind who doesn't view it as a deficit. There's no, it, you, you don't meet a blind individual and they, they, they may have come to terms with being blind. And that's actually very common over a period people that are maybe 10 or 20 years blind may come to terms with it. Um, and, but, but there's no one that would consider it normal, mm -hmm. a, a normal state of being. And so we haven't, the, we've gotten incredible support um, from uh, the blindness societies. So the Foundation Finding Blindness um, uh, is, uh, is an organization particular for retinitis pigmentosa patients. Uh, and they've been incredibly supportive. In fact, they, uh, when I was in graduate school, they actually uh, supported uh, supported me uh, as a graduate student. So they actually, even from the very early days, have been very supportive of this work. So this is, but this is the first step. What's next for you guys? I mean, obviously, we're at commercialization phase in the Argus II, but where do we go from here? Yeah. So, so certainly launching the the Argus II, and we haven't we haven't yet officially launched the Argus II in uh, in the U.S. We'll probably do our first implant next month, first commercial implant. Uh, there have been about 75 patients that have gotten this worldwide so far. Uh, so we're, uh, we're going to, the Argus II will get rolled out uh, progressively throughout the world. We'll, we'll be rolling it out in Asia. Today we're in Europe, we're in the Middle East, uh, we're in Canada. And as far as next generation of products, one of the really neat things about the Argus II is it's a software-based system. So just like your cell phone where you can get a new operating system and get new functionality uh, with iOS 7 or something like that, uh, we have... We've been experimenting with um, software improvements to improve the quality of vision. So we've gotten patients in the lab to 2200, so uh, no longer legally blind um, with, uh, with software improvements. And I mentioned color uh, vision is another thing that we've been working on in the lab to, uh, that will enable in future, um, uh, future software revisions, hopefully. And then uh, the implant design itself, we've, we've been uh, We've, in animals, been able to improve the resolution of the device as well. We've put in uh, over 200 uh, channels, so 200 individual electrodes uh, uh, in the same area that we've done the... Because currently there's only like 65 60, or Yeah, there's 60 pixels, and, and we've also been experimenting with virtual electrodes where we can actually produce, uh, using, the, using software upgrades, create the perception of, of higher resolution for these patients as well. So all of those are things that we're looking at doing, and, and kind of the holy grail and our, our next step on the implant is to take the same implant, same electronics, and put them in the back of the brain, the visual cortex. And so that allows us to treat patients that, that still that have a, a bad optic nerve. So currently the Argus II requires the cable going from the eye to the brain to be intact. So that optic nerve has to, has to be functioning. Mm -hmm. But if we, can, if we can take the same implant, and we have a lot of evidence uh, by others that this works, 
uh, take that same implant and put it in the visual part of the brain, now all of a sudden, rather than a, a, hundred, a few hundred thousand patients, we, we can treat eight million patients that are basically blind from all causes and essentially eliminate blindness, which has uh, kind of been our mission from day one. How far away from that now? Another uh, one year and a million uh, yeah. bucks? <laughs> one year and a million dollars. Now, uh, um, I, you know, I, I think that we're, we're not 15 years away. You know, we think, I think we're about two years away from the clinical, uh, clinical work on that. And um, the, uh, the, the, step, the step from going from nothing to our current product was a lot bigger than taking the same product and, and putting it in a different location, and especially since there's already been a lot of the preliminary work that's already been done in this new location. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, we think it's a, it, it's a, it's a much more modest project. Um, it's a, basically a, clini a new clinical trial for the same technology. Right. Do you imagine doing that as a standalone company? Or, I mean, are you going to explore other funding opportunities, an IPO yeah. or something? Yeah, so we're right now, we're, we're right now in the stage, the, the board's in the stage of, of looking at uh, how, we're, how to optimally commercialize the global uh, commercialization of the Argus II and also how to commercialize the, uh, or how to fund the, uh, the ongoing um, uh, R&D for these, for these new products. And I think the, the leaning is towards um, doing a, a one or two year kind of private round and, uh, and looking at doing an IPO about a year from now when uh, assuming the markets, yeah. uh, the markets stay the way they, the direction they seem to be going and, uh, and assuming our commercial ramp in the US looks like what we expect it to. Can I get in on the e that IPO? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Friends and family. Only. Yeah, right. Well, okay, one last quick question here. You look back at, at yourself 20 years ago, 22 years ago, and you, what advice do you give him? Wow. Um, I don't think I would tell him what, <laughs> what I know now, because I think if I told him what I know now, I don't think I would have started uh, <laughs> if I realized it was going to take 22 years. Um, so I think the being being naive, uh, I think, was an advantage that uh, that we were able to to try something that uh, that turned out to be harder, but but turned out to be uh, incredibly valuable for uh, for these individuals. That probably if we had realized how hard it was, uh, we wouldn't have started. Well, best of luck to you, and I hope we'll come back and keep talking about the conversation. Thanks so much. What an amazing Thank technology. You, amazing That's stuff. Fine. Thank you.